Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, December the 22nd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Most people are winding down at this stage to what promises to be a particularly quiet Christmas as the country looks forward with a significant level of uncertainty to what the Omicron variant of COVID-19 may or may not bring in the weeks ahead. A little later in the podcast, we're going to be joined by our London editor, Dennis Staunton, to discuss the continuing turmoil at the top of the British government. But first, the Irish Times' public affairs editor, Simon Carswell, is here. Hi, Simon. Hi, Hugh. You've been covering some of the issues around COVID in Ireland over the past week or so in some depth. You've been talking to a lot of knowledgeable people. And really the thing about Omicron at the moment is, isn't it, that there's an awful lot of known unknowns and we just have to wait to see how they pan out. There really is. There's an awful lot that we don't know about this new variant. We don't really know um, whether it's going to translate into the same level of a disease severity as the Delta variant. And what we do know is that it's much, much more transmissible. It's two to four times more transmissible than Delta. So it's highly contagious. And the concern is that if it spreads in very high volumes, if it translates into the same level of disease severity, given the volume of cases it's going to create, if those translate into hospitalizations and ICU admissions, then the hospital system is going to be under very considerable pressure. But it's not clear yet whether it will. And anecdotal evidence so far suggests that in South Africa, which would give us a reason for some optimism, that it didn't trans- translate into that severe, severe disease. It's, it was quite mild. But South Africa is in a different situation to us. Yes, they have much lower levels of vaccination, but they have had lots of um, infection in the past. So they would have had a lot of immunity from past infection, which is different is a different situation to here in Ireland. So it's too early to say really yet as to, as to how worried we should be about just how bad this, this variant is in terms of severity. Yeah, I was looking with some interest. At, so we were speaking on Wednesday morning at reports by Reuters on what's going on in Denmark, which along with the UK, uh, those are the two European countries which have been hit earliest and hardest by, by Omicron. Denmark is a country that's not dissimilar to Ireland in terms of the size of its population. They had record numbers the day before yesterday, I think it was, of 13,500 positive cases. But they have yet to see a significant increase in hospitalizations. But of course, the thing there is that hospitalizations are a lagging indicator. They are, and they tend to lag by two to three weeks. So this is the trouble that we have with the watching um, watching Omicron and what's happening with it. It's going to take a number of weeks before we know how bad it is going to be or how benign it is going to be. Um, Denmark is a good country to follow, actually, because, as you say, it's the same size roughly population-wise. And they're not far off what we have done vaccination-wise. They have about 89% of their adult population vaccinated. I mean, we've over 93, 94%. So we're, we're in and around the same area. The difference with Denmark is they don't have as many people boosted as we have. They've just 25% and we've approaching 40% and we're the second highest in Europe in terms of boosting. So um, it's it's similar in some ways and, and not similar in other ways. They're looking at the same 
roughly the same projections and modeling um, as we are in terms of case numbers. They're saying that their daily case numbers could be between 9,000 and upwards to 45,000. Philip Nolan, the chair of, of Neffet's modeling group, said here that in an optimistic scenario, it's between eight and 10,000. Um, and in a worst case scenario, you're looking at 20 plus thousand. So the figures aren't a million miles away from each other. And then they're also looking at, in Denmark, at, at hospital admissions of between 120 and 190 a day. Now, that's significant in that Denmark has never had more than 5,000 cases a day. And they certainly haven't have anything like the numbers that they're projecting in the hospital. Now, they've gone quite far. They've closed cinemas, theatres and museums and banned alcohol sales after 10pm. We haven't gone quite as far as that with our curfew at 8pm. And I guess the thing that's probably most concerning, I would say, in terms of our restrictions is that the government hasn't yet reduced household mixing. They did. They left that unchanged. So four households can mix in one. Um, so that's still quite a level of household mixing uh, over Christmas. And that would be uh, one to watch as to what effect that has. I mean, one should always be suspicious of anecdotal information, but I'm sure lots of people listening to this podcast will have had an experience similar to mine, which is that a lot of people have dramatically reduced their social interactions over the last week or so with a view towards being able to meet family members and particularly to safely meet uh, older or more vulnerable family members uh, at Christmas itself. So there's a sort of a, there's a self-disciplining going on there that I, I I think we can see around the country. You just need to go into any of our town and city centres to see that things are much, much, much quieter than they would be normally. I think so. I think people, certainly the politicians are lagging the public somewhat in terms of the restrictions and people kind of know what they have to do. And of the experts I spoke to actually for this piece that we ran on Monday, it was quite interesting, Dr. Dr. Catherine Motherway, who's head of the ICU unit down in University Hospital Limerick, she made the point, well, you know, she hopes that we know what to do at this stage to avoid lockdown. And I think that's a fair point. I think people do know what they need to do. And I guess that was the point of the exercise of the article was, can we do this on our own or do we have to have government um, do it for us to apply the measures? And I think the lesson of last Christmas, the so-called meaningful Christmas, which was an absolute disaster where the government let um, ha- uh, hospitality continue in the run up to Christmas and then allowed people to mix in households after that. So essentially allowed the virus to spread last year in the community with the increased hospital, allowing hospitality to remain open. And then basically sent the virus back into homes over Christmas with the mixing. So I think if you look now, certainly people are are taking their own actions. And I think that's a fair point that Catherine Motherway made. You know, we have learned an awful lot. This isn't March 2020. We know what this virus does. It's very simple if you mix in congregated settings indoor, particularly um, given that it's winter, lots more people will be indoors. The virus will spread. The virus likes that situation. So we avoid those situations. And we've heard Dr. Tony Holland say this week, you know, spend only spend time with people you intend to spend Christmas Day with. So again, limiting the number of people you should be around. And that's really the message, I think, is that can we take these actions on our own or does government have to do it, have to go further? And I think at the moment, people definitely seem to be taking the actions uh, off their own bat. Now, as you say, you talked to quite a wide range of medical and scientific experts uh, a couple of days ago about this. And it's fair to say that there was quite a wide range of views, wasn't there, about whether the current restrictions were sufficient, um, whether more more restrictions would be needed immediately after Christmas, 
What was the range of views? One shouldn't always look at the extremes, but obviously uh, I was I was most taken or perhaps most chilled by those that suggested we needed to go back to essentially the same kind of lockdown that we had a year ago for up to eight weeks or more. Yeah, I mean, I think the range of views, there was a range of views, but the range perhaps was quite narrow in that it went from most pessimistic to less pessimistic um, and maybe uh, less pessimistic and people hoping that the current situation would work. The public health experts I spoke to, Rory, Rory Brewer, who's a professor of public health at uh, Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland, he was of the view that uh, he expects stricter lockdown measures. He thinks that pubs and restaurants need to close. He thinks public events need to be called off and he expects a very tough January. Now, he was of the view that we're going to have quite a lot of mild to moderate uh, illness. So he made the point we're going to have a lot of paracetamol taken in homes and people stuck in with their families over Christmas and they'll be ill in a very in a very moderate way, so not too much to worry about. But expecting that uh, the measures that have been introduced so far the government, by the government won't be enough, they'll have to go further to protect the hospital system. Now, Anthony Staines, who's professor of uh, health systems at Dublin City University, is a member of the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group. He expects a pretty horrendous Christmas in January. He's the most pessimistic of the people I spoke to. And he thinks there should be an eight-week lockdown really to suppress cases in order to protect uh, the hospital system. I mean, he made the point, and it's, he's right, the hospitals are full currently. There's about a third of the ICUs uh, have COVID patients in them. So hospitals are still dealing with uh, the Delta wave. And yes, case numbers have come down uh, from the Delta wave. Hospitalizations have come down and ICU numbers have all thankfully come down. But they're still at very, very high levels as we go into this very um, f- fast spreading variant uh, of, of this new wave. So there's a concern there. And he felt there must be restrictions on some movement and you know, reluctantly thinks that a lockdown is required. But then if you go to some other views uh, from a GP, I spoke to Dr. Ray Wally, who's professor of general practice at UCD. He thinks the restrictions are appropriate, um, though he says that the boosters won't work alone, um, but we have to take all the usual measures. And But he, like Catherine Motherway, thinks that the government needs to move quickly. Catherine Motherway said that she'd hope that the government would be willing to take very hard and difficult decisions if required in order to protect the hospital system. Um, and the fifth person I spoke to, Dr. Anne Moore, who's down at UCC's School of Biochemistry, she's a vaccine specialist. She had an interesting view. She said, really, we don't know yet. As you said at the outset, you know, Omicron is three times more transmissible, more infectious than Delta, yet we don't really know yet whether that's going to translate into three times as much severe disease. And she was saying the government should really be planning that it will, and they haven't been. And so that leaves open the idea of being in for a very, very difficult January, very tough ride over the coming weeks. Of course, the biggest single difference um, between this Christmas and, and and 12 months ago is that the state does have one significant lever, which you mentioned already, which is rolling out boosters as fast as possible to as much of the population as possible. Because even though we're still waiting to see completely comprehensive data on the relationship between between boosters and Omicron, there's a sufficient data to know now that the boosters are are very effective at preventing whatever about transmissibility uh, at, at reducing the chances of severe disease. And the booster programme, which was the subject of some criticism a couple of weeks ago, does seem to have ramped up very significantly in the last week. It definitely has. I mean, if you look at all of the booster categories, the age groups that have got their third doses, if you look at even through the end of November and into early December, we were already seeing 
the hospitalization levels amongst those older groups, which are the ones we should be most worried about, they were falling quite significantly through the end of, 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 end of November, start of December, which is a sign that the boosters are working. Now, that to a large degree is pre-Omicron, um, and that was taking account of the Delta wave. It was having effect, the boosters were having effect, and the early data that we've got from the two uh, big ma vaccine manufacturers, certainly the vaccines that we, uh, we are concerned about here in Ireland, Pfizer-BioNTech has said that three doses have a much, much greater level of protection than two doses. They're talking about a 25-fold increase in terms of protection um, against Omicron, which is very, very optimistic and comforting. And then Moderna came out last week and said that there's a 37-fold increase if you have three doses. So both those companies saying that is, is reassuring. Now, we had Yugur Shaheen, uh, the head of BioNTech, say he said that even triple vaccinated people are likely to transmit the virus, he said in an interview this week. So that's worrying. Um, now, BioNTech are developing a specific vaccine to tackle Omicron and they're saying it's about 100 days it's going to take. So they're saying roughly in March it'll be available. So we're going to wait and have to wait and see just how, how much uh, the boosters help to reduce the level of infection and the level of severe illness from Omicron. Uh, and that's really a wait and see. Uh, that's one of those unknowns that you talked about at the outset. So we're looking at... Um, we're looking at a very kind of tricky time, that kind of unknown period uh, over the coming weeks and months. Now, some of the early research has shown is a little worrying. Imperial College in London did come out with some stats showing that the two-dose protection is quite low against Omicron. It's only up to 20%. So that's not great. And then they've said that a booster pushes it up to 55 to 80%. So absolutely, it's a tool to, to manage this Omicron wave, to protect against it. And we should be giving out boosters as quickly as possible. And to be fair to the government, they are going at some pace. Uh, they're breaking records in terms of the number of doses, number of jabs they're getting into arms, which is, which is very positive. Um, but I would say that they need to keep plowing ahead at that uh, at speed over the coming weeks to make sure as many people are protected as possible. And some of the constraints which were there up until now in relation to who could and couldn't be eligible for a booster have been removed or relaxed. There were timeframes in place, which which now I, I think the science has shown those timeframes didn't actually make sense and it makes sense to to uh, uh, reduce or indeed get rid of them all totally in some cases. Yeah, well, in, up until this week, if you had COVID, um, uh, you couldn't get a boost for six months. Now, given the fact that the South African experience has shown that if you've had COVID in the past, Omicron uh, means that you still, you can catch it again, you can get reinfected. So that would that would really points to the fact that they needed to look at that. And they did, thankfully, and they did change that quickly. So they've gone back to three months. So if you've had uh, if you've had COVID in the past three months, you can't get boosted instead of six. And if you look at the figures, that's roughly about 110,000 people who caught COVID between June and September who now fall into the category of, how, of who people who can get the booster. So that's quite a significant number of people. Um, so again, that's a very good move that they're doing that. That's going to bring in a whole load more people now to get vaccinated. Uh, at the moment, the, the boosters are concentrated on the 40 up and people who have underlying uh, conditions and pregnant women. We're not yet clear as to when they're going to start vaccinating the 20 somethings and 30 somethings. And that's a concern because those are the age groups where we're seeing the highest rate of positivity and highest increase in cases uh, numbers with and uh, the NEFET has said they think that that's Omicron. Those are the first signs of Omicron. So the group that Omicron is spreading in most is the group that's least vaccinated. So that's a worry. 
And there's a further concern with that is because that is the group which was most likely to have received the single shot Janssen vaccine as opposed to the the other vaccines which were available. And the data is much worse on on that in terms of how much protection it now gives. Yeah, that that's a problem they have. Uh, those who got Janssen really need to get the boosters as soon as possible. Um, but if you look at the eligibility queue, the sequencing currently means that they're not getting their jabs until the new year, which is a challenge because not only are we still, uh, not only are we boosting new age groups in January, we're doing the mass rollout of the first doses for children aged 5 to 11. And that was the group in November where we were seeing the highest case numbers. So we're heading into a kind of challenging period for the vaccination program. They're rolling out to new age groups. They're rolling out to the 30s for boosters, to the 20s for boosters, to the group between 16 and 29 who got Janssen. And at the same time, they're having to give uh, first doses to that very uh, that young age group, the primary school going uh, children age group. So that's, a, that's going to be a challenge managing those three big groups um, in the new year. I'm going to come in with a slight bit more anecdotage, apologies for this, but I know for a fact of many people who are outside those age groups who either have had uh, boosters already or are going to have them in the next while. So it seems to me that what's at play here really is that overall they don't want the um, the perfect to be the enemy of the good and that it may not be moving down in quite that systemic way through the age groups uh, as as the government maybe is suggesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's just a casualty of of the nature of the rollout currently. It's a very different rollout than we had before. So if you look at the the primary dose vaccinations through the summer, they dealt with it by age. So 59s got it, then 58s, then 57s, whereas now they're going in blocks of 10s. But there definitely is a sense of free-for-all about it. Um, And a big difference this time around is that you can get your vaccine through three different channels. You can go to the HSE's vaccination centres, you can go to pharmacies and you can go to GPs. And they're all really giving out boosters in in very, very big volumes. Um, And so each of those channels, uh, certainly the pharmacies and the GPs, seem to be giving them outside the allotted age group and eligibility group. And we're hearing lots of anecdotes anecdotal evidence of that happening. And I think that that's just the difference that if you're going down in blocks of 10, it's going to be a little bit more crudely done. Um, And I I think, I don't think there's any harm in that, to be honest with you. Mike Ryan said at the outset, the famous statement he made back in March 2020, you know, um, speed trumps perfection, you know, don't let perfection be the enemy of the good here. And I think that's that's accurate. And, And certainly if the whole aim of this vaccination program currently is to get as many people boosted as quickly as possible. Then, uh, you know, if some people get it out of sequence, then no harm, as long as the most vulnerable are getting it and they're boosted in time to protect them against uh, whatever is coming with Omicron. One last point, Simon, in relation to Omicron that strikes me about it is because of the, the, the hugely increased transmissibility is that almost regardless of government restrictions or indeed new government restrictions and taking on board the primary challenge of keeping the health service uh, afloat. Um, the size of the wave of Omicron, which is projected by, uh, by by much of the modelling, means that there will be vast numbers of positive cases. There will be vast numbers of close contacts. The rules that are currently in place for behaviour and those things are going to mean that a lot of companies, institutions, schools, um, employers of various sorts will find that they don't have sufficient uh, people at work or doing their work in January in order to keep going, it seems to me. So that might be a different type of a shutdown that will have to happen. And I wonder in that case, will it be necessary to look at the rules that pertain to things like close contacts, which have already been adjusted when it comes to health service employees, for example? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that 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 could well happen if there's a whole lot of 
disease, a whole lot of infection, but it's all mild and moderate, then you're going to have to look at, well, if it's mild and moderate, do we need to worry about people mixing so much because it's not going to be as severe and it's not going to put, uh, put that very severe impact on the health system. I think actually a good, uh, you know, canary in the coal mine or a good example of what we're seeing now with that is the Premier League in, in the UK, where you're seeing quite a lot of people, uh, quite a lot of teams having to cancel games because um, they just don't have the players. So there's large numbers of players who are out. So I think that, that could happen on a much broader level where you see uh, quite a lot of employees out sick. They're not severely ill, but they just can't go into the office or their workplace because they could potentially spread the virus to somebody else. So I think that that's going to be a challenge. Uh, while we not, may not be putting pressure on the hospital system, we can't really be mixing to the same level because so many people have it. Um, so there kind of might be an unintentional lockdown of sorts where companies just need to close because the sheer volume of cases. Um, and if you look at some of the modelling Given the transmissibility of this variant uh, and given how quickly it could spread, it could be quite a short wave. Um, the models suggest that it would peak quite early. The challenge is that if it does cause a level of severe disease, you will see um, hospitalizations. And the difficulty uh, with some of the hospitalizations that we might see is that it could result in hospital beds and ICU beds in particular being taken up for long periods because people who have COVID don't spend short time, a short time um, in ICU, those who recover. It is a long process. And Catherine Motherway made that point, you know, even in an optimistic scenario that if we have 9,000 cases a day, even if one of those ends up in ICU, that's still a very, very large number for the hospital system that has only 300 beds uh, to manage that. So I think we're going to see uh, big challenges. I think Really, we have to watch and see what the hospitalizations are. But I think, yes, definitely, there could well be pressure on workforces. There could well be pressure on uh, the health system because of the number of healthcare workers who, who are out. So I think they will have to look at some of the criteria around uh, around which people who are close contacts, how they have to um, manage their behaviour and how they have to uh, reduce their contacts and isolate. Thanks very much, Simon, and a very happy Christmas to you. After the break, Dennis Staunton is going to join us from London. He'll be discussing Boris Johnson's chances of steadying his ship after a series of largely self-inflicted disasters, plus what the departure of Brexit Secretary Lord Frost might mean for negotiations over the Northern Ireland Protocol. Dennis Staunton, I'm very interested to know what you make about the events surrounding the uh, sudden departure of Lord Frost, the Brexit minister, at the weekend. Well, uh, he told Boris Johnson a week before the resignation became public. It became public at the weekend. And what happened was that it was leaked to the Mail on Sunday. And uh, the idea had been that he would kind of leave quietly, not actually leave until the new year. And then somebody else would take over the the Brexit brief. But then it came out and so he then wrote this letter. But the reason he gave for uh, resigning was not actually Brexit at all. And he claimed afterwards that there were no disagreements between him and Boris Johnson about the uh, tactics or the strategy of the Brexit negotiations. What he said was that uh, he was unhappy with the general direction of travel of the government, and particularly what he described as the coercive coronavirus measures which were being brought in. But he had been for some time uh, 
talking about the idea that actually the only way that Brexit could work would be if Britain embraced a kind of a low-tax, uh, low-regulation system, a kind of Singapore on the Thames, where you'd be a regulatory rival for you know, to the European Union, and you take advantage of the freedom from European rules. And he gave a speech a few weeks ago where he said, you know, there's no point in leaving the European Union only to kind of follow the European model. I mean, that that is a view which, as we know, is shared by quite a substantial number of Conservative MPs, most of whom voted against their own government last week for essentially the same reason they were dissatisfied with the with the relatively modest uh, COVID restrictions which were which were brought in by the Johnson government. But but more broadly than that, how much of a threat to the Johnson project, if you could describe it as such at this stage, is that libertarian, hard Brexiteer conservative wing? It's a big threat because, and in a way, it kind of goes back to Brexit, because if you look at what the coalition was that uh, produced Brexit, it was a coalition between these libertarians. An awful lot of the old Eurosceptics were very much like that. They wanted to make a bonfire of regulations. And then what Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson did in the referendum was that they actually pitched uh, the appeal in a different direction altogether. And so they said, you know, uh, we'll, the money that we save that we're now giving to Brussels, we put it into the National Health Service. And so Boris Johnson uh, you know, essentially has governed on the basis of that mandate where uh, he's talking all the time about more money for public services. And so in a way, there's these two parts of the coalition were always a bit incompatible because you had these elements like the libertarian MEPs and like David Frost, who essentially wanted to use the opportunity to become a more Thatcherite kind of an economy. And then you had these other people who voted for Brexit because they thought that it would protect them against competition from Europe. And that's everybody from fishermen to people on low wages who were competing for jobs and for services with Europeans. And so that you know, it was appealing to these two different groups with different things in mind. The problem is for Johnson that this libertarian wing uh, accounts for a lot of the MPs in his parliamentary party. Half of his backbenchers, about 100, voted against uh, one of these restrictions, which was the idea of using COVID passes to get into a nightclub. Many of these people have not been in a nightclub for quite some time. But anyway, it was a nightclub or a large venue, an indoor venue where you're standing up if it has over 500 people. And so this was a point of principle for many of them and obviously for David Frost as well. So it is a threat because these, in a way, are the people who brought Boris Johnson to the leadership. Uh, they are the Brexity element. They are the libertarian element. And so if those people are turning against him, he never had much of a personal base in the party because he's always been something of a political loner. And so once he loses these people, the danger is that he goes the way of uh, every other leader of the Conservative Party in recent times, which is that he's just not hardline enough. And these are the people, obviously, who have been causing, one way to look at it is that they've been causing trouble in the Conservative Party ever since the days of John Major, uh, arguably. But in addition to that, you now have another cohort of MPs who won seats in constituencies which voted Leave in 2016 and then voted Conservative for the first time in the in the 2019 election. And really, they're the people that delivered Boris Johnson his stonking great majority. Are they of a different mind? 
Some of them are. Uh, some of them are. I mean, remember, if you to be a conservative in one of those constituencies that had voted Labour for a hundred years, is generally speaking not to be a very socialist kind of person. You're a rather unusual person if you're a conservative, or you were. And so, on the one hand, many of them do want investment in their places. So this so-called leveling up agenda, the idea that you move investment out of London and the southeast and you move it up to these places that feel, as they say, left behind in the Midlands and the north of England, former industrial uh, heartlands. Uh, you know, they want money. And so they want public investment. But at the same time, uh, an awful lot of their local party members would be small business people who would also uh, reject the idea of these coronavirus restrictions. So that they've, they're a kind of a funny mixture of people who want handouts from the state, but they also have a libertarian streak as well. I mean, if you look at the people, the hundred people who voted against this measure, it actually, they come from all wings of the party. So you have these hardcore traditional libertarian Brexiteers, you've got those red wall MPs, you've got some sort of Theresa May uh, hangers on. Theresa May herself abstained and she later made it clear uh, through her people that she didn't abstain by accident, she abstained deliberately, it was a real abstention. So she defied the whip as well. So you had all of these people who have various different reasons to be unhappy about these restrictions but also to be unhappy with Boris Johnson and Boris Johnson's performance in the last uh, six weeks or so. And uh, and it is amazing when you think about where we're talking now, about only two months ago or so, uh, around just after the Conservative Party conference. Boris Johnson was unassailable. He was, as they said, in world king mode. And uh, he was uh, simply, you know, people were talking about the idea that Boris Johnson could be in power for a decade. Now people are wondering if he survives weeks rather than months. And most people wouldn't bet very much money on Boris Johnson being prime minister this time next year. Although he's probably safe for the moment, isn't he? I've been reading various commentators in, in London on this, and he does benefit, in the short term at least, from the fact that there's a, a national crisis around the pandemic going on, which makes the idea of an internal Tory party heave look particularly unappealing. And then you add to that the fact that some of the factions which you described there are have quite different views and come from different places. So coalescing around a, a movement to get rid of them might take a while. Plus, if you were one of the the leaders in waiting, you probably wouldn't want to take over right now anyway. You'd probably hold your powder and wait until later into 2022, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would. And uh, and that, and that certainly I think none of the leading contenders would want either to have a letter-writing campaign to overthrow him or to have a contest or to take over right now. They would prefer to wait for some time. But the best laid plans have a tendency to go wrong simply because things can happen. So, I mean, I think that the timetable that you hear talked about at Westminster would be that uh, he struggles through the rest of uh, this phase of the pandemic and then we see how he goes and then the that you've got local elections in May of 2022. And if he fares badly then, that would be the trigger to uh, start a leadership contest. And you have a leadership contest in the summer, probably with a new leader installed in time for the uh, summer recess. That would be the orderly way of doing things. But the trouble is that he's got a few swords of Damocles shaking around over his head, one of which is this investigation into parties that happened in Downing Street last year and indeed one that happened earlier this year. And, uh, you, know, you know, that could 
suddenly produced something which made it impossible for him to carry on. Or indeed, you could have, I mean, you're now getting kind of photographs and various other kinds of evidence of all these goings on. It might only take one or two more photographs for uh, you know, this whole thing to come to a head at a moment that is inconvenient for everybody, including his uh, would-be successors. So, I mean, it may be that uh, you know uh, everything runs its course in a stately fashion and nothing happens until the summer, and that maybe he even survives if he does okay in uh, in May. But it may be that something happens much more quickly. We're living in very, very uh, unpredictable times here. What does he need to do and is he capable of doing that thing, whatever it might be? In other words, you know, there's a lot of stuff about you hear he needs to pull up his socks. He needs to get a grip on the agenda of the government. He needs to get some proper advisors in. He needs some coherence. Is he capable of doing those things? Well, that's the question. Uh, you know, like one school of thought here is that when you talk to a lot of MPs, and particularly say, I was chatting to a government minister the other evening who was talking about how you know he just needs to get a proper team in there in Downing Street. You know, and that's a very common view. Just get a bit of grip, get a more political chief of staff than Dan Rosenfield, who came from the Treasury and had been at Goldman Sachs. Get somebody who can talk to the MPs and get somebody who's really running the operation. And then other people talk about how when he was in in uh, the City Hall when he was Mayor of London, that he kind of did the front of house stuff and went around cheering everybody up. But he had all these deputy mayors who did the work and that that's the best way for him to operate because he is a good campaigner. He's not very good at governing. He's not very interested in it. And so if you had uh, you know, other people doing the governing for him, the problem is that City Hall, the Mayor of London doesn't actually have many powers. Uh, you know, he's got powers over transport and over policing and over, you know, generally cheering people up. But Prime Minister, you've got, you know, crises all the time. You have really big decisions to make, uh, you know, every hour of every day. That's just the nature of the thing. And there are certain decisions that nobody else can make. And that's where the questions are now starting to come up, you know, that... How many changes of personnel do you have to have in Downing Street? You had the authoritarian approach from Dominic Cummings when he was running the show. That didn't make people happy and he had to go. Now you have this more liberal and kind of collegiate or approach, or maybe it's not collegiate, maybe it's more like a medieval court where everybody is, it's all about proximity to uh, Boris Johnson himself. And that doesn't seem to work. Maybe the problem isn't the... King's wicked advisors. Maybe the problem is the king himself. And so maybe it is that he just isn't up to it, that actually there's nothing that anybody can do to the structure of Downing Street, which would resolve the problem with his own deficiencies. You know, this is, a, but this is the paradox. So, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, he was elected and chosen by the Conservative MPs because he was an election winner, because he had a certain kind of magic. And some of them, I think, still believe that despite all of his troubles now, that if you look ahead to a general election and you ask yourself, who can keep this coalition together that got them the 80-seat majority? Is anybody else able to? And one of the problems, for example, I think that any successor might have is that they, being conventional politicians, would have to have some kind of coherent ideology 
Boris Johnson, because he's a celebrity first and a politician second, doesn't because so he can be a big spender and he can be a saloon bar Tory and he can be, um, you know, a liberal on social issues and he can be a social conservative when it suits him because Boris is Boris as far as a lot of voters are concerned. And people forgive him this ideological incoherence. And it may be that when it comes to it, that say Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss, actually are easier for the Labour Party to oppose because they're conventional conservatives. Whereas Boris Johnson, it's it's more difficult to, you know, to get a handle on exactly who he is. Now, you mentioned Liz Truss there, and of course, Johnson has appointed her, in addition to her uh, her already existing duties as foreign secretary, to be have overall responsibility now for Brexit and the negotiations that are, arise from it, which, which means she's going to be pretty busy, I think, apart from anything else, uh, which he might want, given that she is seen as, alongside Rishi Sunak, the, the heir apparent, should, should he be toppled, and also a bit of a poison chalice. I mean, I think everybody who's been involved in Brexit negotiations at a sort of non-prime ministerial level uh, has, has sooner or later um, come, come a cropper. The problem is that that poison chalice is his poison chalice too. So if you look to go back to David Frost's resignation, it wasn't overtly about the Brexit negotiations. But the fact was the Brexit negotiations were coming to a particular point. So that uh, what had happened over the last few weeks was that, first of all, the, uh, you know, the British side had continued to talk about triggering Article 16, but not with very much conviction. And nobody believed they were going to do it because the consequences of doing it were going to be so great. The Europeans had made clear that if they triggered Article 16, that the Europeans would give notice of the termination of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. And that's a trade war. It's big economic damage to Britain. The price was too high. So Article 16 was no longer an effective tool. And then uh, what happened in uh, just in the last couple of weeks was that uh, the British would withdrew or retreated from their demand on the European Court of Justice. And David Frost said he would be prepared to consider what he called an interim agreement, which dealt with just the practical matters that the Europeans are happy to talk about, about the protocol, and left the European Court of Justice for another day. And I can tell you that other day is never, because uh, the Europeans, once they have a deal about all the practical matters, they're never going to do a deal on the European Court of Justice because they don't have to. So now, uh, so he got out just before a difficult moment was going to come because once the negotiations continued into the new year, he would really have had a choice of either carrying on and doing a deal, which appeared to be what he was about to do, which would inevitably be a betrayal because every deal is a betrayal because it's never going to be pure, or else he would pull the house down by doing Article 16 and bringing Armageddon on his head. And that's, of course, is Boris Johnson's head too. And so, you know, this wasn't, you know, neither of these were very happy or palatable options. So David Frost got out with his virtue intact. And so he can now cry betrayal from the sidelines if Liz Truss and Boris Johnson do a deal. But of course, Liz Truss, for the reason that you're talking about, she has ambitions. And so she's not going to want to, you know, come across as being somebody who sold the pass on the European Court of Justice. And so she might be reluctant to to do a deal. Boris Johnson himself is afraid of his MPs at the moment, so he's antagonised them enough, so maybe he's not going to want to. And so what can they do? Putting down the House with Article 16 is, just as it was a few weeks ago, still really not a good idea because of what it would bring on their heads. So the other option, if they don't want to do a deal, is just to kind of mosey on, to string things out, to, uh, to keep talking, 
to never be entirely happy with whatever is coming down, to bring the European Court of Justice back into the forefront. And Liz Truss uh, on Wednesday, which is uh, on Tuesday, which is when we're talking, Liz Truss uh, had her first chat with Mara Shevkovich, and she once again repeated that the European Court of Justice had to be resolved along with all the other issues. So it may be that what we're going to enter into now for the next couple of months is not a confrontation, not uh, a, de- a deal, but just a kind of a go slow. Naomi O'Leary in Brussels was talking to people there who all seem to be delighted, not surprisingly perhaps, to see David Frosco. But they have a, a perception which which I think you, you would slightly disagree with, which is that this is all political theatrics in the UK to just red meat for, for the base, to use the to use the American term. But what you're talking about, I think, is a is a more subtle and nuanced set of political incentives and triggers that, that the, the British political system is trying to negotiate its way through and there is no happy outcome for them, really, for it. Yes, and in fact, the thing is that those people who are rejoicing in Brussels are foolish because if David Frost had stayed and stuck around, he had unrivaled credibility among the Eurosceptics. So that if David Frost put his stamp of approval on some compromise, they would have swallowed it in a way that they won't swallow it from anyone else. There's nobody else who has that kind of credibility. Liz Truss, who campaigned to remain in the European Union, certainly doesn't have it. Boris Johnson himself has no credibility about anything at the moment with his MPs. And so actually, the chances of getting a deal were higher when Frost was around. And Frost had quite clearly bought into this idea of parking the whole issue of the ECJ for the future. Uh, you know, he accepted this, he, you know, he voiced it, and he said very clearly that he had no disagreement with Boris Johnson about the uh, the negotiating strategy. And so had he stuck around, I think that, uh, you know, a, an outcome to the satisfaction of the Europeans might have been, uh, might have been more likely sooner. The fundamentals remain the same, which is that... Uh, you know there are there are very few good options, and even this business of stringing things out forever, uh, while it has some appeal, I would say to the British side because there's a chance that you might create sort of facts on the ground that the protocol is never fully operational. The fact is that one of the problems with all this arguing about the protocol is that it gets in the way of various other things that Britain wants to do. And so Liz Truss, for example, as Foreign Secretary, she hasn't said all that much that's very interesting, but one of the things that she has been saying is uh, that she's been talking about uh, working with European allies on the big issues as as far as she's concerned, which is dealing with Russia over Ukraine and dealing with uh, China over the fact that Britain has decided to join America in this hostility towards China. So that there's, um, you know, so in other words, that as foreign secretary, she will want to have a good relationship with the European Union. But as chief Brexit negotiator, she will uh, not want to give any ground. So, so you know, it's still a, it's going to be a difficult position. And there is still, there are still good reasons to do a deal on this and to get it out of the way. One last question, Dennis. You're there in central London. There's only a couple of days to go to Christmas. The the restrictions over there are, are, are much lighter, despite the controversy they've caused, than the ones that we have here. But I get the sense that London has largely shut down anyway. 
It has shut down more or less. I mean, an awful lot of restaurants have closed. They closed at the weekend because either they were short of staff because so many people are coming down with this. An awful lot of theatres, shows have closed, partly because people don't feel like going to them. But an awful lot of it is, again, people in the cast and the crew are coming down with uh, coronavirus. But you also see it in terms of people's behaviour. Walking on the streets, you see more and more people wearing masks outside. And this is from a place, in a place where a couple of weeks ago, nobody was wearing a mask anywhere. And so you now have everybody kind of fully masked up in the places they're supposed to be, and a lot of people masked up in places they, they don't need to be. A lot of this, of course, is people not wanting to get it before Christmas. And it'll be interesting to see what happens after we all have our bacchanalian couple of days around that time. So I think that people are, you know, they may, you know, they're very careful now, but they might start to get a bit more relaxed after Christmas, which is one reason why it might be difficult for Boris Johnson to bring in some restrictions and to get people to abide by them uh, if they're not that scared. Be very interesting to see. Well, Dennis, enjoy your own couple of bacchanalian days, and we look forward to seeing you uh, early in the new year. And to you too, you. And that's it for today. Thanks to Simon Carswell for joining us earlier. Also, thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon. It only remains for me to wish you all a very happy Christmas, wherever you may be from the Inside Politics team. We are going to be back in your feed before the new year, so do keep an eye out for that. But until then, goodbye and thanks very much for listening.